Welcome to the January 2016 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal. Our editor's choice paper this month relates to the economic outcomes of ECMO with and without ambulation as a bridge to lung transplantation. Bain and colleagues conducted a single-center, retrospective cohort analysis of subjects supported with ECMO as a bridge to lung transplantation. Subjects supported with ambulatory ECMO had a 22% reduction in total hospital cost, 73% reduction in post-transplant ICU cost, and 11% reduction in total cost when compared to non-ambulatory ECMO subjects. As stated by Spinelli and Prati, muscle strength is a major determinant of lung transplant outcome and therefore lung transplant candidates, even those who are critically ill, should get fit for it. Ambulatory ECMO can turn a risky waiting time into an opportunity to actively rehabilitate and for achieving the best outcome. Spurious hypoxemia has been described in case reports during extreme hyperleukocytosis, which led to recommendations for immediate sample cooling and analysis of arterial blood gases. Vandelow et al. sought to determine, in samples processed as recommended, the magnitude of spurious hypoxemia in subjects with acute leukemia and hyperleukocytosis. They found that, despite cooling and quickly analyzing the samples, there was poor correlation and agreement between SpO2 and SaO2, which was unacceptably low for a white blood cell count greater than 100 times 10 to the 9th per liter. Albert and Swenson remind us that there are numerous ways in which erroneous values for oxygen saturation discrepancies can lead to confusing and misleading blood gas interpretations. Minimizing errors and recognizing spurious values will help diminish errant conclusions and ultimately improve patient care by avoiding the larceny of excessive cost and possible harm arising from a mistaken diagnosis. During non-invasive ventilation of patients with COPD, delayed cycle of pressure support can cause patient ventilator asynchrony and non-invasive ventilation failure. Moore et al. used a lung simulator with settings similar to COPD connected to an ICU ventilator via helmet or face mask to evaluate this issue, augmenting the cycle criterion above the default setting of 20 to 30 percent peak inspiratory flow improved patient ventilator synchrony in their model, suggesting that an individual approach to cycle criteria should be considered. As stated by Reddick, in an effort to improve synchrony based on physiologic measures, we must not lose sight of patient comfort. This will require study in human subjects. Ciprandi et al. conducted a cross-sectional study of a visual analog scale to assess perception of asthma symptoms and lung function measured by spirometry. The results of this study suggest that asthma symptoms assessment by a visual analog scale might be a reliable tool in the management of patients with asthma. A quality improvement project was designed by Modricamian and colleagues to assess whether liberal manipulations of ventilator settings affect the rate of tracheostomy and 28-day 
ventilator-free days. Ventilator changes were considered as major changes if manipulations included a change in the mode of ventilation. They found that the number of major ventilator manipulations was associated with the rate of tracheostomy and length of stay on the ventilator. Ozenkak et al. determined characteristics and outcomes associated with the use of non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure in different age groups. NIV use and do not intubate status were more frequent in subjects greater than 65 years of age. Specifically, NIV use and do not intubate status were more frequent in subjects greater than 65 years of age, especially for those with cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Overall, NIV success and mortality rates were similar between age groups. The role of mean platelet volume in COPD exacerbations was assessed by Agapakis and colleagues. They found that mean platelet volume may be an inflammatory marker in COPD exacerbation and that the measurement of mean platelet volume values may be useful to identify patients who are at increased risk for exacerbations of illness. Basso Vanelli et al. evaluated the effects of inspiratory muscle training and calisthenics and breathing exercises in subjects with COPD with and without respiratory muscle weakness. Both interventions increased exercise capacity and decreased dyspnea during physical effort. However, inspiratory muscle training was more effective in the increment of inspiratory muscle strength and endurance. Subjects with respiratory muscle weakness who performed inspiratory muscle training had higher gains in inspiratory muscle strength and endurance, but not of dyspnea and submaximal exercise capacity. Toussaint and colleagues conducted a prospective randomized study of the effect of air stacking via a volume-controlled home ventilator versus a resuscitator bag in subjects with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. No difference in cost-effectiveness was found between these approaches. Thus, an inexpensive resuscitator bag, which is easy to use, can effectively improve cough capacity. The aim of the study by Wilson et al. was to determine patterns of physical activity and mediators of behavioral change across stages of change in individuals with non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis. The pattern of physical activity across stages of change was consistent with the predictions of the trans-theoretical model, which provides support to explore trans-theoretical model-based physical activity interventions in individuals with non-CF bronchiectasis. Sharma and colleagues hypothesized that a pharmacologic dose of zinc administered daily for 12 months would reduce the need for antibiotics in children with CF. They did not find any significant difference in the need for antibiotics, pulmonary function tests, hospitalization, or colonization with pseudomonas in children with CF receiving zinc supplementation of 30 mg per day. The bedside significance of improved filtering of pulse oximeter monitoring alarms in the neonatal intensive care unit was evaluated by Stefanesco et al., Although filtering reduced some nuisance alarms, its specificity to nurse-identified desaturation events does not improve significantly.
Mucopati et al. compared the frequency of blood gas measurements adjusted for mechanical ventilation duration, occurrence of extreme PCO2 values, and clinical outcomes among ventilated neonates managed with and without transcutaneous PCO2 monitors. They found that, despite only moderate agreement between simultaneous transcutaneous PCO2 and arterial PCO2, transcutaneous PCO2 use resulted in a decreased frequency of blood gas measurements in ventilated neonates without affecting duration of mechanical ventilation or clinical outcomes at discharge. The authors suggest that the clinical impact of this technology appears to be minimal. The purpose of the study by Stieglitz and colleagues was to evaluate nocturnal measurement of transcutaneous PCO2 in hypercaptic subjects. They found a good agreement between transcutaneous PCO2 and capillary PCO2. Because PCO2 fluctuates in patients with respiratory failure, the authors recommend that continuous transcutaneous PCO2 may be a method of choice for the diagnosis of nocturnal hypercapnia. In addition to these original research papers, this month we also published a review paper on asthma control assessment tools. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.